0: Well, thank you Mark, Connie, and Lorene. By the way, Happy Mother's Day. I've told you already, but Happy Mother's Day. We're blessed here at South Street to have some wonderful musicians and talented people who give us their gifts as an act of worship. So thank you so much for choir and for uh, that trio uh, with amazing grace. Well, a number of years ago, uh, a couple, a young couple in their early 20s came to me uh, to be married. So at our first session together, we were talking. I asked them, uh, about their spiritual background, their church background. I wanted to know something about their, their spiritual lives and maturity, what they understood. Um, and the young man told me that uh, when he was about 16 or 17 years old, he said, he's, he said, I, I figured the whole religion thing out. I said, uh, what do you mean by figured it out? He said, well, my, my buddies and I found the, uh, the mass, uh, the church that had the earliest mass on a Saturday, And we would go and we would pre-confess all our sins for the weekend. And then we were good. I said, oh, you mean kind of like a sin credit card? He said, exactly. I said, "Uh, you know, I don't think it works that way. And he said, well, I know that now. But then I thought we had it all figured out. We had it made, you know. Uh, We pre-confessed and we were good with God. And I think that's how a great many people in our culture kind of think about religion, That is, uh, go to church once in a while, do a couple religious things now and then, and I'm good. We're in a series now, as all of you know, I think, unless you're brand new, uh, from the New Testament letter called Colossians, and the subtitle is The Fullness of God. And we've seen that the Apostle Paul is writing to this young church in a city called Colossae in the first century, just 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead, and he's heard great things about this church, even though he's never visited this city in uh, the great things he's heard from a young man named Epaphras who had started that church who one time had been under Paul's teaching in Ephesus. But he knows that this young church, even though they believe and they follow Jesus, they're being distracted and maybe even confused by a number of different religions and religious philosophies that were popular in that time, in that place. And so he writes them this extraordinary letter uh, in which he tells them that he's praying for them, and he encourages them to hold fast to the true message of the gospel, beginning with a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And every week we've been uh, trying to uh, review certain verses from the first chapter that uh, we would love to have you have in your mind and heart, memorized or just familiar with, that tell us who Jesus is. So look at the screens. I want you to read along with me these beautiful verses from Colossians chapter 1. Next week we'll do that with our eyes closed, so be prepared. Just teasing. But last week, uh, Blake, our pastoral resident, showed us uh, how Paul reminds the the Colossian believers that by faith in what we just read, by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done, that they are now in Christ. That phrase he uses over and over again in Colossians, that they are in Christ and therefore have been moved from emptiness to fullness, from death to life, and from guilt to death. Grace. Now, today we see Paul turning his attention to what we might call religion and religious rituals. So, today we'll be reading from Colossians, the second chapter, beginning at verse 16. I'll have the words on the screen. You can also look in your personal Bible if you have it with you. Verse 16, Colossians 2, Paul writing, Therefore, and when you see the word therefore, it's pointing to everything that's just been said in the letter. So, just by review, therefore, since Jesus is the fullness of God, "...since Jesus is in you and you are in him, since Jesus has moved you from death to life, has canceled your debt, since all this is already true of you, Colossian believers and you, South Street believers, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you." the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, we're going to look at three things today. First the freedom of Christ, and then the sufficiency of Christ, and finally uh, the life of Christ. First the freedom of Christ. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in a pastor's home, which means I grew up in the church. Here's a picture of me at about two years old uh, with mom and dad after church, small church outside Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I can't tell if I'm happy about it or not. But my dad was a pastor of usually small churches for many years, and often he was the only pastor, which meant he preached 50 Sundays a year, morning and night, and so we were in church. Uh, church was not only part of our lives, it was expected. We always went to Sunday school, uh, usually at Sunday school first. I, I remember having at one point a streak of seven consecutive years of perfect Sunday school attendance. Remember those little pins you would get? I had a whole bunch of them, right? And then we go to the worship service. Uh, but there were also other expectations for us as a family on Sundays. Maybe some of you can relate. We went home after church and always had Sunday dinners together as family. I still remember my mom making her pot roast or her her fried chicken. And then we were required to take a nap because Sunday was a day of rest. And because Sunday was a day of rest, uh, my brother and I weren't allowed to go outside and play ball with friends uh, in the neighborhood. We weren't even allowed to watch baseball on TV. And all that was fine, not an issue when I was six or seven years old. But by the time I got to be about 12 or so, it started to become a little bit of a problem. I didn't want to take a nap. I didn't really need to take a nap. I wanted to play ball with my friends. I wanted to watch the Yankees on TV. And then by that time, I, um, because I was in Sunday school all the time, I learned enough about the Bible uh, to put together a kind of a, a case, to present my case to my parents about why I should be allowed to do the things I wanted to do on Sundays. I argued, and see if you can track this argument, I argued that God rested on the seventh day in Genesis and then gave the Sabbath to us so we could rest from our work, right? Mom and dad nodding their heads, right? Okay, good, proud of you. You know, you know Genesis. Then I argued that what I wanted to do was play. And play was not work, right? Okay, they're nodding. Therefore, by playing, I am honoring God's command to rest from work, Right? So therefore I should have the freedom to play or watch others play so long as I wasn't working at playing. I don't remember how long it took. But eventually I wore them down and won my Sunday freedom. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what's Paul getting at here? He's talking about... ...what I would call external religious rituals. Both Jewish traditions and surrounding pagan practices... ...which we'll talk about in just a bit. Did you know that today there are an estimated 4,000 religions in the world? Let that sink in. 4,000 religions. But there are five largest, most influential religions... ...and you know what they are. The five largest religions in the world are Christianity... ...roughly 31% of the world's population... Uh, Islam, about 25% of the world's population. Hinduism, about 15% of the world's population. Buddhism, about 7%. And in Judaism, less than 1%. And all of these religions, both the five major world religions and the 4,000 other world religions, uh, fall into basically two kinds of categories. First category is religions that are based on human effort. What I must do to please, placate, or earn the favor of God or God's small g. Like, for example, in Islam, I must observe the five pillars of the faith. Buddhists must follow the four noble truths and the eightfold path. Hindus must follow the four rules and avoid the eight sins. Jews must keep the law of God as found in the Torah. And all those religions are about what we must do to please or placate God to be rewarded by God someday. The second category is... Religions that are based on divine accomplishment, what God has done for me. And every religious system in the world, except one, is in that first category. The only world religion based entirely on divine accomplishment is Christianity, and that's what the letter of Colossians is all about. Paul has already described, in no uncertain terms, the supremacy of Jesus. We quoted those verses earlier, just a few minutes ago. He's already spoken about the supremacy of Jesus and the work of Jesus. That Jesus is the fullness of God. Everything God is, Jesus is because he is God. That through the cross, Jesus paid the debt of our sin and canceled all the charges against us. That by faith in Jesus, we are transferred from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, let's look at what Paul is arguing against. Verse 16, Therefore... Like I said, because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, because of who you now are in him, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. In particular, this is a reference uh, most things to Jewish background, religious teachers of the day, who were insisting that these believers in Christ continue to obey the Torah or the Old Testament law. In particular here, the food laws of the Old Testament. Let me give you a taste. I didn't mean to say that. (laughs) A taste of those food laws. Leviticus chapter 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat, Among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these the camel. Because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof is unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat of any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Got that? Okay? No camel? not really tempted, no rock badger, not even sure what that is, no rabbit, no problem for me, but no pig, bacon, (laughs) and if you read that chapter, that, that list goes on for 47 more verses, but compare that to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Mark gives a commentary here. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what gives? Which is it? Well, the laws of the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, uh, were part of what's called the Old Covenant. They were designed to point the people of Israel to the holiness of Yahweh, their God, and to separate the people of God from all of the peoples of the earth. But by his death and resurrection, Jesus is in himself the new covenant. That's why we have the New Testament. And Paul has already said that through Jesus we are made righteous. Through him we are made holy. Food laws, therefore, are no longer Necessary, So he writes, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now what does he mean by festival or new moon? Most scholars believe this is a reference to the, the ancient Hebrew calendar, which was based on the lunar cycle. In fact, way back in the Old Testament, God actually commanded his people to bring a sacrifice on the first day of each month called the new moon offering. But interestingly, as we follow the history of the Old Testament, the people of Israel would would fall away from God, fall away from faithfulness to his law, but they would keep practicing these rituals, the new moon festival. And then we read in the prophet Isaiah, when God says through the prophet, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So here, Paul is just saying that Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice, who renders the observation of these rituals no longer necessary. So then, what then about the Sabbath? Mention Sabbath. As Paul is Paul saying the fifth of the Ten Commandments, "Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy," is no longer applicable to us? That we are no longer to pay attention to that? Well, not really. In Matthew 5, remember, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he also said in Mark 2, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here what Paul is teaching the Colossians is that we are to understand the Sabbath as an invitation into relationship with God, not as a religious ritual, not as a box to check in order to keep the rules. And right here I wrote a little note in my sermon. So mom, dad, seems I was kind of (laughs) right. Way back then, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the word here means body, belongs to Christ. All these religious rituals are mere shadows of the real thing. But the body that casts the shadow, the substance, is Christ himself. Paul's reminding these Colossians that they have freedom in Christ, warning them of the dangers of legalism. Now why is a legalistic, rules-based faith so dangerous? Because it reduces faith to a checklist. Imagine trying to approach marriage that way. Imagine trying to um, be legalistic in your approach to marriage. What if the checklist I needed to do to be a good husband involved three things every day? What if I had to give my wife one compliment every day, had to help out with at least one chore every day, and tell her I love her once a day? If that was the checklist, what would I do? Some of you husbands, guys, you know exactly what I would do. You don't have to nod your head or anything right now. I just know what you're thinking. I would wake up every morning, and before even getting out of bed, I would say, Good morning. I love you. Check. You look really good for a tired person. Check. Then I go downstairs and make the coffee. Boom! Done for the day. Right? Is that what marriage is? Some of you wives are going, well, it'd be a start. (laughs) maybe even mine. <laughs> but marriage isn't a checklist, is it? It's not. The standard is much higher than a check the box. It's a covenant love relationship, and our faith is not a checklist. That's what that young man I mentioned at the beginning was doing. You know, you go go there early on a Saturday, check, got it covered. See, Paul himself was once a legalist. In fact, If you read the New Testament, Paul might have been the greatest religious legalist who ever lived. He was super good at being religious. He'll tell you himself. But at the same time, he was an arrogant, angry, hate-filled, violent, and sinful man. And he knows it. And then he met Jesus. He was dead, and he became alive. That's why he wants these Colossian believers to know it's not about a checklist. I've done that. Been there. It's about a living relationship with a living Jesus who by His Spirit lives in us. Secondly, we see here in this passage the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. A number of years ago, a long, long time ago, um, 25 years or so, I was approached by a small group of um, three or four uh, women who were part of this church, but had gotten involved with a a, a group uh, from another uh, religious fellowship and had become really interested in what I would just call dramatic spiritual experiences, in particular with prophetic dreams and visions. So when we met, they told me that they'd each had dreams that they believed were messages from God to them that they wanted to pass on to me and the church. And I listened carefully and respectfully because I do believe God can and does speak through His Holy Spirit in all kinds of ways, and I'm always willing to hear if He is speaking. But as they went on, I began to realize that what they were saying didn't line up very well with what I believe Scripture actually teaches and what, with what we believed as a church. So I explained to them, while well, I appreciated their experiences and believed they were very genuine with dreams and visions and so forth, my responsibility as pastor was to discern whether or not those experiences line up with what we know from God's Word what we know from, from historic Christian theology. I explained that I believe God does speak, but most clearly through his word and through the leaders he's placed in his church to teach, preach, and shepherd. And we need to be very careful when we evaluate individual spiritual experiences, no matter how real they might seem, like dreams and visions, and we had to pass them through the lens of God's word and so on. Well, they didn't really agree with that. Uh, They believed that their dreams and visions were more significant than what we find in God's word or what we teach historically. And... The whole group eventually left our church and went somewhere where they could pursue that kind of mystical, spiritual experience. Paul speaks about that here in verse 18. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his his joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says, Let no one disqualify you. Remember, he's already told the Colossians that they are fully qualified. Remember back in chapter 1, he writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. (coughs) All that's done. Qualified. So here he says, let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, uh, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by sensuous mind. He's talking about those who are teaching that faith in Jesus... Was not enough. That you needed further exotic or dramatic spiritual experiences in order to encounter God. Then he points to three examples asceticism, which we'll talk about in just a minute, worship of angels seems to be, have been a teaching swirling around that God was so high and removed. Remember, the Gnostics believed God it was spirit, and spirit was good, was totally separated from matter, which is evil. That God was so far removed that direct worship of God was impossible, and angels were sort of intermediaries between humans and God, and so you had to begin by worshiping angels. Like a couple stopped by the church randomly one day, again, years ago, I'd never met them before. They didn't go to this church, but they saw a church. They walked in. I happened to be here. And uh, it was a man and a woman, and they had a little, a little statue with them. Uh, I said, and they, they asked for the pastor. I came out, and he said, they said, uh, there's a little, stat- little tiny statue of a saint. And they were asking me, would you do, do a prayer of blessing on our statue so we can put it in our yard, and it helps us pray. I asked him a few more questions about it, and I said, well, actually, you know, I, I, I won't do that, but I, I will pray directly to God for you, and I can teach you to pray directly to God, uh, and that's what I did, but they were, they fit in this category of needing something. They were going to pray to a saint who could take their prayer to here to take their prayer to here to take their prayer to God, because they couldn't pray directly to God. That's what Paul's arguing about here. He says, and then he says, uh, visions. And those are like dreams and, and mystical experiences. Now, the desire for these things is not altogether bad. The desire for deeper spiritual experiences is not bad. But we tend to look for those things in personal experiences. Paul says, be careful. Truth is found not in your personal experiences, but in Jesus in his word. And he is sufficient. And through Jesus, we have direct access to the Father because he is the fullness of God third thing we see in this passage is what I'm calling the life of Christ. The life of Christ. It's Mother's Day, so I wanted to include a story about my mom, who I talk about um, fairly regularly. Uh, she went to be with the Lord in 2020 at the age of 90. Uh, this photo is her high school graduation photo. I'm going to leave it up there while I tell this story, okay? My mom was born and raised in the hills of eastern Kentucky, a coal mining country what we would call Appalachia today. She didn't have an an indoor toilet until she was 19 years old, after this picture was taken. Uh, She wasn't raised in a Christian home. Her father ran a liquor store for a great uh, many years. Her grandfather was a binging alcoholic who died at age 60 or so from black lung disease. He'd been a coal miner. But when she was 19, she was out of high school and uh, still living at home, working in a local five-and-dime store, and she was unhappy with her life. I'm shortening her story down quite a bit. And even though her family did not go to church, she went to hear a missionary lady preach who visited her town occasionally. She went to, I think, an evening service, literally kind of a dirt floor, little wooden benches. She listened to this lady preach. She heard the gospel, clearly for the first time, understood that she needed forgiveness and hope that only Jesus could offer, and she gave her life to Jesus that night. Now, she didn't understand everything about what following Jesus meant. Uh, She knew, though, that her life needed to change, and had changed. And one of the things she just assumed is that she would no longer be able to use any makeup at all. Because she looked around her and all the women in that little church were very plain. They didn't wear makeup, they wore uh, plain clothes, tied their hair back. She just assumed that that was part of following Jesus. And she liked to say that she just assumed that the more spiritual you were, the uglier you were. But to show her devotion, she she had fallen in love with Jesus, so she was willing to be ugly for the rest of her life, she said. Later on, she did learn, however, that following Jesus wasn't about external things like clothes and makeup, but about a relationship of the heart. So she went back to a modest use of makeup, which is probably good, otherwise I might not even be here, you know? (laughs) Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? Remember, where does Paul say they now live? Early in the letter he says, to the saints in Colossae, in Christ. So they live in Colossae. They live in the world, but they, aren't, they don't live in the world anymore. They live in Christ. So as if you were still alive in the world. Do not submit to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to, uh, to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed a, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are also of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So evidently there were those who were teaching that even though the Colossian believers had put their faith in Jesus, even though Jesus had canceled their debt, forgiven their sin, transferred them from death to life, filled them with the fullness of God, that they still needed to practice asceticism. They still need to practice different kinds of of neglect of the body. Asceticism is sort of a neglect of the body or punishment of the body in an attempt to achieve or prove one's holiness, depriving yourselves of food or sleep or comfort or makeup. Some have believed that as a Christian, you must reject anything that's good or beautiful or enjoyable, like the medieval monks who would flagellate themselves, whip themselves with with chains and whips to keep from having sinful thoughts. Or would bathe themselves in freezing rivers if they had lustful thoughts. In other words, you must suffer to purify yourself to draw closer to God. Now, there is some truth in in spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines can be good for our growth. But asceticism is way further than that. Asceticism is making yourself suffer in order to prove or earn your holiness. To prove your devotion, to merit the favor of God, and Paul says you already have that. Live in that. Jesus said, Matthew eleven, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul says if you are already in Christ. Why do you just submit to such regulations? Why do you even listen? Don't touch, don't eat that, don't do this. Why do you listen to man-made religion that says you must punish your body? For two reasons, he says this. First, Christ is sufficient. What he has done, he suffered for you. That's done. He's sufficient. And secondly, it doesn't work anyway. External restraints do not lead to internal righteousness. He says they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what do we make of this, these two, two little paragraphs? Well, Paul is reminding the Colossian believers that life in Christ is not following the rules. It's not some sort of checklist of religious regulations. That life with Christ is not searching for exotic spiritual experiences. You don't have have access to dreams and visions and angels to know Jesus. Life with Christ is not about proving your own holiness through superficial ascetic practices. Life in Christ is not about making yourself ugly. Life in Christ is freedom, thanksgiving, and joy. Life with Christ is living in a relationship with the one who gave himself for us, who lives in us by his spirit and invites us to live in him. In John 15, Jesus said it this way. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Be you bow with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you for this reminder through this ancient letter that we've been set free from the burden of legalistic religion, from the burden of just keeping the rules. That we need not pursue or conjure up myst- mystical experiences because you are enough. Thank you for inviting us into a personal and eternal relationship through which we live in you and you in us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. The next the last verse of that hymn said, and so let us give our gifts to God and so shall his work on earth be done. Uh, we do believe God is generous and calls us as his people to be increasingly generous as we grow in him. If you're newer to Chapel Street, you may wonder how we do that. We don't pass the plate during the service. Uh, how do we do that? Well, two main ways people express generosity. Uh, first of all, it's online, electronically, by going to our website, or you can call the church office. They can help you set that up as well. Maybe 80% of our people give that way, or in our generosity boxes in the back, following service, just drop your, your check or your envelope in there. We, we, we thank you very much for your ongoing generosity. Receive now the benediction today comes from the letter of Jude in the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To him be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great day.